Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to On the Continent, your definitive guide to the week in European football. I'm Dotson Adebayo. I'm Andy Brassel. And I'm Jonathan Johnson. On this tale of two Champions League semi-finals edition, what is the classic Italians in Europe football style and which Milan will be a winner with it when Milan meet Inter for a place in the final? Also, in the other semi, who's punking who this season, City or Real Madrid? And in the continuing saga of PSG, well, we're talking alleged racism, a potential move to the national stadium and the catch-us-if-you-can title race. Andy, I think it's fair to say, in terms of football in Italy, all eyes are on the two Milan teams who are meeting in the semi-final of the Champions League. It could have been different, but, you know, Napoli are trying to win the title, aren't they? Whereas these two teams... Uh, they're not really going to get near the title this season. It's, it's, it's funny because I think there's a real divide between people who feel that there's a huge romance to this semi-final, especially with Manchester City making massive strides in the competition. A huge romance between the semi-final of Inter and, and, and Milan, of course, a, a, a reproduction of the 2005 sort of abandoned semi-final in, in, in the end. And two clubs with such incredible history, uh, such historical cachet. And those who feel that it's a real shame that Napoli got knocked out. So I think there's those sort of two conflicting feelings. And they have been the outstanding Italian team of this season. We do expect them to go on and, and win Serie A. It would be a big surprise if they didn't. They couldn't have given more in this semi-final, particularly in the in the second leg. But they were lacking a little bit of the magic, a little bit of the inspiration that has peppered their season and I wonder if they've almost been too Napoli for most of this season you know they attacked all the games even when they had a huge lead with this incredible intensity I think you go back to the game near the start of this calendar year where they played Roma at the Stadio Diego Armando Maradona and Roma ostensibly needed the points more because they're battling for a Champions League place, whereas Napoli already had this huge lead at the top of the league. Napoli, spurred on by this incredible crowd, play it like it's the last match they're ever going to play. If you play every match like that, if you don't, at some point, take a break, be kind to yourself, have a bit of a breather, you're going to end up paying the bill somewhere down the line. And they've ended up paying the bill in two of the most important matches of the season, I think you can say. Whereas Milan, even though they've got a relatively young team, Jonathan, they have proved themselves really good at managing games. Not particularly dazzling, but managing games. And bearing in mind that last season was their first in the Champions League for absolutely ages, they've learnt the lessons really quickly. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that was always going to be key for, for Milan because when they get back to the Champions League stage, it's not just like they're back in Europe at European football's top table. You know, they are one of the giants of European football. So, you know, I think Milan uh, sort of learning from that experience in such a short space of time is very impressive. I think it also speaks to Pioli's uh, pragmatism as a coach and perhaps uh, still a little bit of naivety on Spalletti's part to not, uh, you know, rest some of his players, rotate a bit more as you were were alluding to. Um, You know, and I think as well, something that I really noticed, especially in that first leg between Napoli and Milan was sort of this mental I'm not going to call it capitulation because obviously somebody who uh, follows PSG I've I've become an expert in mental (laughs) capitulations over the years but you could tell that mentally Napoli were sort of deteriorating a little bit during that game notably just before half time and certainly in the second half when Anguissa uh, you know got himself sent off so suspended for that second leg uh, and Kim uh, got suspended that was in the space of a, a couple of minutes and I think missing those two players uh, you know Kim obviously has received plenty of plaudits but Anguissa one really underrated part of Napoli's success Great. so far this season uh, you know I think that really had uh, a massive impact on the on the second leg of uh, of this game game and also I think that heavy defeat at home to Milan a couple of weeks ago that sowed the seeds of doubt in uh, in Napoli's minds and you know I think that also contributed to sort of this mental struggle the difficulty that they had over these two legs well you've both given wonderful expositions of what happened you know why Napoli aren't making it to the or aren't in the semi-finals but and there's a great question from Connor that I'll come to in a moment um but it's amazing. Three Italian teams in the quarterfinals, two of them in the semifinals, one of them guaranteed, you know, an Italy team is guaranteed to be mm. in the finals of the Champions League, which is pretty amazing in itself. But I'm, I'm struck by the fact that you suggested, Andy, um, that there is an Italian way of approaching football in Europe. I, it's, it's funny because the way that... Inter and Milan have played these knockout stages, I think is quite anachronistic when you set it in the context of modern Italian football. Because if you think, and we've talked about it before, um, Roberto Mancini has lent into the characteristics of modern Serie A to win Euro 2020 by playing a more attacking sort of football, which is what Serie A is about nowadays. Now, I think if you didn't know the year, and you'd watch the last two knockout games. And I think particularly of Milan on the road at Napoli and Spurs, particularly um, Inter on the road at um, Benfica and at Porto. It's not heavy on possession, defending properly, all being very sensible, not very modern Serie A. But I kind of think that's partly defined by their situation at the moment. Because... The remarkable thing about these two getting to the semi-final is they've both been pretty rancid in in, in the league in, in, in 2023 so far. And I wonder, certainly you've seen it with Milan when they went into the first leg against Tottenham. They played three at the back. They played a little bit more of a wait-and-see approach. They weren't as brave as we expected them to be. I guess they were brave in a different way by just digging in. But I wonder if this defensive approach of these two, this defence first, at least until we got to the back end of that second leg between Inter and 
Benfica and Inter are always looking for innovative new ways to shoot themselves in the foot in the Champions League of of, of course um, but until that point it felt as if this was a sort of nod to retro Italian football from both of these and I wonder if it's really caused by a back to basics approach which is due to their, their poor form in, in the league Yeah, it was that retro type of football that Andy talks about uh, Jonathan, that we remember, we of a certain generation when Italian football appeared, as Andy explained, uh, after uh, Gaza went to uh, Lazio. That, that's the kind of football we expected, defensive, you know, um, pragmatic maybe, something like that. But this, the way that we expect Italian football to be now, which is very much attacking football, not least because of the Euros and stuff like that, will it uh, prove to be a winner, so to speak, in the final? One of these... Uh, Milan teams are either going to face Manchester City or they're going to face Real Madrid. And this is a question from uh, Connor. And thank you for the question. Which of these two Milan teams would be better equipped to beat Man City, Real Madrid in the final? Um, Man City stroke Real Madrid in the final. I mean, personally, if I had to pick a team that I think could be capable of pulling off a, a one-off result, I'd actually probably err towards Milan because you've got some real potential important match winners there, Mignon in goal, uh, you know, Giroud uh, up top. And Inter, like uh, like Andy was saying, you know, they, they, they seem to try their best to find ways to potentially mess things up. I mean, you look at the late goals they gave away uh, at home to Benfica uh, in, the, uh, in the second leg. For me, I think that up against a, a City or a Real, I, I think Inter could get opened up um, and it has the potential to get quite brutal. Whereas I think Milan would probably keep it uh, a bit tighter. I mean, sure, I think there's still potential for them to, to, to get overawed by either of those two teams. But I would be more comfortable putting my money on Milan uh, going toe-to-toe with one of City or Real than I would uh, Inter, I think. It feels like Inter have been flying on the... Uh, on, on the seat of their pants pretty much the entirety uh, of uh, 2023 so far. You've got Inzaghi sort of teetering on the verge of, of being dismissed. Even last night, had they gone out uh, against Benfica, it, was pre- it would have pretty much been curtains for him. So for me, I think it has to be Milan. You, Andy? Same, same. I, I think I trust them to defend a little bit more sensibly. I think the way they've adapted to what, Pioli has demanded of them to to be a little bit more circumspect. They've they've adapted quite well, and like I said, this is a group of players who are are very good at learning on the job. We've seen that on on in the last couple of years, and Pioli really connects with his group. I guess the only unknown about Inter is this season. It's a real struggle to think of too many teams in Europe. I suppose you could argue at a slightly higher level, Bayern. It's hard to think of a team who have such a a difference between their best and their worst because the, the worst of inter is terrible well the best yeah. the, the best of inter on their day i have the feeling that they can beat anyone anyone I, I, I don't think i really felt that going into last night i mean i had the feeling they could beat themselves certainly which they would have needed to do to to, to lose to to a benfica team who were going in with three successive defeats them, them themselves but I, I feel that inter play pretty well globally in both legs against Benfica, and then just a little, little bit of lack of concentration at the end. Whereas you never felt that from, from Milan against Napoli. Now, maybe 
playing against the domestic rival trains the mind a little bit more. And maybe the fact that they were never comfortable trains the mind a little bit more. Maybe the fact, JJ, that they've got Mike Menyon at the back and you referred to him before. I don't know about you, from the moment Fadat Skelia put that ball on the spot, I, I didn't think he was ever scoring that. <laughs> Magic Mike. Magic Mike's got such a presence, but, but he does, doesn't he? He does, but I mean, so too does Anana, to be fair. Uh, in the interval, yeah. he made a couple of uh, important stops as well. I think I, I would favour, though, that Milan back line. They seem uh, more consistent. And I think consistency is, is you know, massively uh, sort of underrated in this, uh, you know, in this discussion because Inter have some players who are capable of brilliance. I mean, look at DiMarco teeing up, uh, you know, uh, a couple of those goals uh, mm. in that draw with Benfica. But then look who he's teeing them up for. You know, he's teeing them up for Lautaro who is the definition of an inconsistent uh, you know goal scorer especially sort of when you need goals from him the most uh, and Correa who you know can come off the bench and, and give you that flourish of brilliance as he did but you can't guarantee that he's going to do that from the beginning of a game or that he's going to turn up over you know two really important legs so uh, you know I certainly think that there are certain consistency elements in this Milan side that I uh, you know would rank sort of much higher uh, than I would on the on the inter side of things because if you're looking sort of in terms of individual ability the gap isn't actually uh, you know that big you know inter's in trouble when they bring on Lukaku off the bench to defend but to try and get a fourth goal it's mad absolutely mad but you can get in touch with us at any time during the course of the week at football ramble at dotton adibio at andy brassel and at john underscore Le Gossip. And this is a tweet from At The Bridge Pod, which says, inspired by the famous photo, who are Inter and AC Milan's current versions of Materazzi and Rui Costa? You might want to remind people what that famous uh, photo is. Yeah, of course, this goes back to the 2005 quarterfinal, where the second leg was abandoned after Dida, the Milan goalkeeper, was hit by a flare. And the photo is, is, is amazing. It's one of the most amazing football photos you'll ever see. And it's um, uh, Matarazzi and Rui Costa of either side leaning on each other and seeing the, you know, the apocalypse happening in, in, in front of them because it's such an incredible explosion of colour. Um, if I was to pick a Matarazzi for Inter, I, I mean, no one's Matarazzi, but I suppose I would pick Alessandro Bastoni, left-footed centre-back, and, you know, I think underrated sledger. Remember that Ashley Young used to write those really nice um, social media posts in Italian, which I, I really enjoyed I did personally. Too, yeah. uh, uh, <laughs> and then the one where he left Inter and said, um, thanks for everything the club's done to me, Forza Ragazzi and all that sort of stuff. The first comment was from Bastoni in English. It said, Thanks for everything, Ashley. Great guy. Awful footballer. <laughs> I just thought, wow. In your early 20s, that's very, very <laughs> impressive. I think as far as um, talking about a current version of Hui Costa, though, I mean, oh, come on, man. Like, 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 like Bram Diaz has been good, but let's not be sacrilegious here. Come on. <laughs> Are we assuming that Matarazzi already kind of has like the villain vibes uh, by this point? Because if we are, I think Chalanoglu is probably a good uh, a good nice. shout for for the sort mm. of. I mean, you've got a guy who's played on both sides of the the Milan divide there. 
But uh, no, I mean, what, what I'm really curious uh, about coming into this game is one, is it going to be better than the Champions League semi-finals uh, a couple of years before that, which led to a pretty awful Champions League final uh, as well. I think it was decided on away goals, that semi. And also what's happening with the, the naming of the stadium? I mean, is it going to be San Siro for both games? Is it going to be Giuseppe Miazza for, for one of them as well? It's, uh, you know, these are all the, the big details that count in these discussions. <laughs> Very important indeed. We've done the, which of the Milan teams would be better equipped to beat Man City or Real Madrid? But the real question now is which of them is going to win the semi-final? Who's favourite? And what would the consequences of defeat be, Andy? Possibly bigger than they would have been a couple of weeks ago. Because, of course, we're thinking about it in terms of pride, in terms of history, in terms of laying down a marker in the competition, in terms of adding to everything they've done in the European Cup slash Champions League before. But there's something else to this. And um, we were hearing from multiple reports in Italy on Wednesday that Juventus are likely to at least for the moment get their 15 points back which is absolutely huge obviously you might want to now, explain why they were deductive 15 points in, uh, briefly yeah for, for, for false accounting yeah basically and um, so they've appealed against that um, it seems as if it's most likely that there will be a new trial for that so in the meantime at least they will get the 15 points back now what that does or what that would do is put Juventus um, back into third place between Lazio and Roma so back into the Champions League places and it would knock Milan out of the Champions League places for the moment at least so Milan would be fifth Inter would be sixth and five points behind Roma in the fourth and final Champions League place and we've both we've already both talked about what terrible form they've been in domestically now what they've got to do in the context of a very exacting physically tactically emotionally semi-final they've got to try and get it together in the league as well because especially with inter they don't win the competition are they going to get back in the champions league next season it's a big question yeah false accounting it's what's known in italy surely as a doing a donaldo trump Trump, 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 Trump. Oh, let's move on to another subject. Real Madrid, the other semi-final is Real Madrid versus uh, Manchester City. It's a replay, isn't it, JJ, of last year's semi-final? Yeah, which we all know, uh, you know, produced pretty uh, pretty spectacular drama. So fingers crossed we're going to get as many goals this time around. <laughs> I think we'll get a few goals, Andy. What do you think? Um, maybe. I mean, I think that the way that City have approached the game against Bayern, it feels like they're learning something in the Champions League at, at last. I don't think they sought to to dominate Bayern for, for both of those games. Match? Oh, because the difference in terms of scoring in, in any case. There, there is, one. but for both those games, I don't really think they sought to dominate Bayern. Um, and I think... They had their bit in the in the first leg, of course, where they played in the second half. I thought I thought they played really well for about fifteen minutes. And normally, from City, that is enough. If they play anywhere near their best for fifteen minutes, the other team is absolute toast. And um, that's that's what happened. And combined to the fact that Bayern didn't defend very well, and I thought Thomas Tuchel complained about um, Clement Turpin, the referee, in the second leg, and he said everything was great apart from the referee and the pitch. Now, that kind of followed on from 
what he said at the end of the first leg, which was a really quite bizarre press conference where he said um, Bayern had played really well and, um, you know, just a couple of under individual errors un undermined them. If they'd have defended the way they did midway through the second half for 10 minutes more, they might as well not have bothered turning up for the second leg. They, they really were architects of their their own downfall, really. Although I understand from Tuchel's perspective, it's difficult to make too much of a comment on a squad that someone else assembled when you've been there for six games. It, it is quite difficult to do. But I think from City's perspective, before they face Real Madrid, what they could take confidence from is that they sought to manage the situation in, in a different way. So that's something that they can take into the Real Madrid game because what they don't want to be doing is thinking too hard about how last year finished. Although there's not quite the same harem scarem feeling to Real Madrid in the knockout rounds that there was last year, JJ, because that was just chaotic. It was chaotic, and obviously that was Benzema. Uh, you know, the height of uh, you know that run that eventually took him to to Ballon d'Or success. But I wouldn't say that Real are sort of any less menacing at this moment in time. I mean, look at what you've you've got Benzema basically picking and choosing when he delivers performances, as Real do. Uh, you know, collectively at the moment, they've pretty much given up on La Liga. They've got a shot at Copa del Rey, uh, and obviously a, a shot at the the Champions League, which is kind of almost become their exclusive property in the last uh, sort of 10 years or so. But um, I mean, I think as well, when you've got someone like Tony Coase, who's, you know, weighing up whether he retires or continues to, to play at the, the very highest level with Real Madrid, where this group of players just seemingly f tend to find this like, you know, extra last little bit of the the summer wine that's left over in, uh, you know, the bottle from this particularly good vintage. Uh, and, you know, I do still feel that they are extremely formidable, especially when you look at, you know, the form of Thibaut Courtois as well, you know, absolutely, uh, you know, impossible to, to, to breach his goal at times for, for Chelsea with some of the stops that he made. So I do think that there is still an element of Real, you know, potentially being, uh, you know, quite daunting for, for City. Uh, but I don't necessarily think that'll be rooted in what happened last season. It's more what they're still capable of, uh, you know, this campaign. It's a funny thing, actually, what you've mentioned there, because I think when you look at the performances of the two teams in the quarterfinals, it feels a little bit like City have lent into what Real Madrid are. That sense of, you know, you can't dazzle all of the time, but just manage the game and make the most of the, the, the biggest moments. I think if you look back at both of those teams' performances, it doesn't feel like you can look at the scores and it looks like they trampled all over their opponents. You actually watch the games, and I don't think that was the case in either, either game. And you have both Frank Lampard and Thomas Tuchel uh, just coming back and saying, what happened there? You know, we, we played okay. What happened? It, it's, they're, they're almost trying to, trying yeah. to work it out. Yeah. And it goes back to, you know, that, that bit at the end of the game at the Bernabeu, at the end of the second leg at the Bernabeu last year, where... Um, Pep Guardiola is just sort of rubbing his head and saying, hang on, what just happened? It's, it's a similar thing. And really, I, I, I guess it's an interesting thing because we think of Guardiola as such a fundamentalist to his own approach, such a zealot, really. 
has he finally got to the point where he's thought, okay, I'm going to adjust the way we approach things slightly because I personally, through three clubs now, have not won a Champions League in coming up 12 years, which, you know, no one's knocking his contribution to coaching, the history of football, all that sort of stuff. It's a long time to go without a trophy of that magnitude when you're considered the best, when I accept it's a cup competition, but year after year after year, it, it can't be fate every year. So I think the, the fact that he's looking at things a, a little bit differently, it, it's, it's not a bad thing, I think, even if you're Pep Guardiola to look at Carlo Ancelotti and think, how does he do this? Bernardo Silva said after uh, the quarterfinal match, um, after the match against Bayern Munich, that uh, Manchester City have learned to approach these big games with big teams in a different way, not to dominate the teams or try to dominate them, but to defend, defend, defend. It does seem to me, uh, JJ, that the shortcut to that comment is we've learned to do it the Carlo Ancelotti way. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, like Andy said, uh, you know, I don't think there's any shame in somebody, even Guardiola, who's done, you know, so much for the game, uh, you know, over the years <clears throat> to look at what Carlo Ancelotti has done, you know, an absolute master uh, at this level, uh, you know, and, and wonder sort of, is there a way that he can perhaps alter sort of his uh, formula? And I think, you know, Guardiola, despite however many times he goes into press conferences and denies that, you know, he tinkers with his team when he starts to overthink things, getting to the business end of a of a Champions League. You know, there is that aspect, I think, where, you know, it crops up in his mind that he hasn't, you know, had the, the, the same Champions League success, uh, you know, over his spells with other clubs. And, you know, I think maybe this different approach, uh, you know, this season... Uh, is reflective of, uh, you know, maybe Guardiola recognising that, you know, he has to avoid that and, and maybe go with a sort of more of a, a broader, you know, season-long approach as opposed to sort of ratcheting up the pressure on himself, uh, you know, come these uh, these big matches, whether it's semi-finals or, you know, the final itself. And I think as well, you know, they have to do something, uh, you know, perhaps radical, uh, you know, mentally, in order to, to give themselves the best possible chance to of success while they still have this generation, this good crop of players together, because there are some key elements of that which, you know, which will start to, to fall away, need replacing, and there's no guarantee that, you know, they will be at the same level as some of these key guys, uh, you know, who have, uh, you know, been at the highest level of the game in Europe for, you know, a few years now. JJ doesn't believe that uh, City... The, the, the way they got punked last year will play on their minds. Do you, do you think that they'll play on their minds? Well, until they've got past it, we won't know, will, will, will we? Um, you, you would hope not. And the evidence so far would suggest that they're in a good position to get past it. But it's only so far. It's like we can't know if Manchester City are, are, are really capable of winning the Champions League until they actually do it because that, they've, they've fallen short so many times before. You know, year on year on year, they're the favourites for the competition. But you've got to actually win it to be able to justify it, but just as, as Real Madrid have it. They've got again, Erling Haaland this time around. They didn't have him before. Yeah, they do. And I, I think I think you're right, because I think Haaland makes more of a difference to them in cup football than he, he does in, in, in league football. Not that he's not made a difference in league football, but they've had to learn to play with him and he's had to learn to play with them. Whereas in cup football, all that matters is the goals. 
whether it knits together, that's a discussion that can wait. That doesn't really matter as much, does it? You know, you're talking about him getting a chance and, and him taking it, which, you know, no one's better at. But I think, I do wonder when we're talking about City rethinking things a little bit, and especially in the context of the Champions League, and going back to something that JJ was saying, I think that's right. You've got to work out how you're going to get the best out of you're going to squeeze every drop out of this lot of players because that's exactly what Real Madrid are doing. You know, they've already had an astonishing run in the last 10 years in the Champions League. You go back to 2014 in Lisbon and, you know, they, they are the dominant team in the Champions League since then. And I think if you asked a lot of people, certainly at the time, is this one of the, the great Real Madrid teams? They would have said, well, no. But Ancelotti and Zidane have worked out how to absolutely maximise their ability to get results in this competition. And that's why they have to be the gold standard for for everyone. And I think even this season feels an improvement on last season for them. They've taken the drama out of it, especially at home. Some of the performances, very, very erratic. And that's something we've seen. We go back to the Zidane period and we see that from Real Madrid in the Champions League that there's this extra layer of drama that there doesn't need to be. And really, that's one of the reasons that they're it's bizarre for a defending champion, but they're almost going under the radar this season because nothing they're doing is spectacular. But actually, it, sh- it shows a greater level of control in these, in these knockout games. So it's Milan versus City in the final, yeah? From both of you. Just about, maybe. I, I, I think City, Real Madrid's really close. But yeah, I guess just about. I, th- I think I'm probably erring towards uh, Milan against City. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode of the Football Ramble is sponsored by BetterHelp. Life throws many different challenges at us, and as a result, we all have our own sources of stress. Whether big or small, those stresses can impact our lives in unpredictable ways, and if we don't address them, they can have an outsized and unwanted impact. Therapy is a safe place in which we can address these issues, learn to understand them, and find ways to work through them. Having therapy can be beneficial to anybody, not just people who've experienced major traumas, even if you may have not considered it before. It could be simply a time for you to get things off your chest, a way to learn positive coping skills or how to set boundaries. Ultimately, it can be whatever you need it to be. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire and BetterHelp will match you to a licensed therapist. You can even switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash ramble today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com forward slash ramble.
Now, let's concentrate on League 1. Or should I say, JJ, let's concentrate on PSG. Yeah, absolutely. Never a dull moment uh, over here in uh, in Paris. And obviously, uh, you know, there's been a situation developing with Christophe Galtier over the last week or so, uh, which, to be honest, is uh, difficult to, 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 to try to boil down to about a minute. But that's exactly what I'm going to try to do here. So Christophe Galtier has basically been accused of... Um, racism, uh, notably uh, Islamophobia from his time uh, with Nice, uh, where he left under a cloud. And basically, there's been a lot of silence from Nice ever since. But things boiled up uh, to the surface recently when a leaked copy of an internal email came out alleging that Galtier had, uh, you know, been uh, complaining about the the composition of the squad, Um, not just in terms of how difficult it it made, uh, you know, putting out the strongest possible 11 on the pitch during uh, a testing period like Ramadan uh, physically, but, uh, you know, also uh, the sort of the external pressures around the club as well and that sort of the locals were not happy that the makeup of the team did not necessarily reflect how, you know, they they feel uh, as, a, as a people. Uh, we do know that they are, um, you know, have very high numbers of, uh, you know, quite extreme support uh, in and around the area of, uh, of Nice. And basically this has come at a time when Christophe Galtier is under fire uh, with PSG for having failed uh, in the Champions League uh, quest, also having gone out of the Coupe de France. Uh, and basically it's almost a, a war of words now because it's still very much rooted in the sort of he said this and he said this uh, between uh, Julien Fournier, who uh, was formerly the sporting director at Nice, uh, and Christophe Galtier, formerly the, the head coach uh, at Nice. It also involves uh, Galtier's uh, adopted son-in-law. And basically, this this leaked email has come at a, a, a really inopportune moment for Nice, who are fighting to, to get themselves into the Europa Conference League semi-final, uh, and also at a time where Galtier has, tri- has been trying to save his job uh, with PSG. So I hope I've uh, done it justice, but this is an ongoing situation where you have interviews going on with people in and around Nice at the moment. The Nice president uh, was uh, interviewed as part of a police investigation into it. The the club offices have been raided. Uh, you've also uh, you know got uh, Ineos's sporting chief uh, Brailsford who's expected to be interviewed for it as well uh, you've got Christophe Galtier uh, you know who's sort of had to, to take on a, a security uh, you know um, detachment uh, for, for his family to, to basically ensure they're safe because somebody leaked his personal details including his phone number uh, which resulted in uh, a, num- a large number of death threats uh, Galtier himself is pursuing uh, legal action, Fournier was very quick to respond from Beach in Brazil uh, to, the, to the allegations you've had a number of uh, you know former players uh, stepping in to defend Galtier, you even had the man who, who hired uh, Fournier at Nice suggesting that he was would side more with Galtier than uh, than with Fournier over this. So, you know, it is a very lively topic in uh, in French football at this moment in time. One that continues to change by the hour, by the day. Perhaps there'll be more clarity when some of the Nice squad are actually able to to potentially talk about this publicly. You wouldn't imagine that would happen until at least uh, you know their their Europa Conference League run is uh, is is over. But like I said, there is this ongoing investigation and the, the feeling that this could be uh, about to be blown open at any moment. 
the, the remarkable thing to, about this to me, JJ, is that the accusations have been out there for more than a year. And Nice have presumably not done anything about it. There's been no internal investigation, certainly none that we know about. I think the interesting part of it as well from the PSG perspective is clearly because they knew about these allegations or at least a bit about these allegations, when they were negotiating to sign Galtier from Nice, they asked Jean-Pierre River, the Nice president, directly about them. He said, it's nothing to worry about. Maybe to protect the compensation that he was going to get from PSG when he, he let Galtier go. But this none of this puts Nice in a particularly good light, does it? I mean, I, I know people always want to nail drama to, to, to PSG. And I guess we'll know more when we if we, if we know the, the, the source of the leak and if we get further down the line with this. But do we have any indication to Nice's defence for why they didn't deal with this at the time? Because all this has been public record for a year. Yeah, it has. I mean, Nice themselves went on the record as well with a very, very brief statement where they basically said, this is a matter that concerns two ex-employees of the club. It was treated with utmost uh, seriousness at the time and there will be no further public comment from Nice. Obviously, that might have to change. Now you've got certain members of the club being involved, being questioned uh, you know, by the authorities uh, you know, regarding this. But for the moment, Nice feel like they've been clear enough uh, on, the, on the topic. I mean, it, it is important to... Um, you know, emphasize once again that this is still very much sort of a case of, you know, one one man's word against another. Uh, you know, there's a feeling that perhaps the Nice players could shed some important light on it. But until any of them speak publicly, there will be no clarity on sort of how they know, uh, you know, Galtier has said uh, or behaved, how he's alleged to have uh, spoken and behaved. PSG have been very clear that they're backing Galtier as he pursues legal action, but also they stand against any sort of behaviour that Galtier has been, uh, you know, accused of, uh, and also point out that, you know, at the end of the day, this is something that allegedly happened, uh, you know, during his spell with Nice, not his spell with uh, with PSG. So it's all getting very... Um, very murky between the two clubs you've also got Jean-Claude Blanc who left PSG for Nice so there is sort of that you know pre-established relationship uh, between him and, uh, and and PSG as well which you would assume uh, you know would be able to shed some light on it uh, you know given how long he was uh, you know at the head of PSG's project for but uh, like I said until there is some sort of public comment either from Didier Degas, who reportedly did not have the best of relationships with Galtier, or from the players who, understandably, given what's at stake in the, the Europa Conference League at the moment and not talking publicly, uh, you know, we, we, we won't be able to know with any sort of certainty. Had to be fair, Andy, PSG know how to make their own drama, not least by announcing that they might be leaving their home stadium, the Parc de Prince where famously I saw Michael Jackson, but that was another era, <laughs> another era. Um, but, and going to make a bid for the Stade de France, which is the National Football Stadium, isn't it, JJ? Why? 
Yeah, well, I think we all have, uh, you know, uh, fond memories of concerts at Stade de France. I certainly saw the reformed police there as well. So, uh, you know, that's a, that's another one to, to add to the Stade de France's long list of uh, impressive concerts that they've held over the years. But, yeah, I mean, the, the, the issue between PSG... Um, uh, you know, and the mayor of Paris over Parc des Princes and the, the need to, to expand it to, to become sort of an arena that's worthy of a club like, uh, you know, of, of PSG's standing uh, has been, you know, going on for quite some time now, as well as the situation regarding Stade de France and, and what happens. I mean, I guess what I would say is that it still feels very much like this is trying to exert the most amount of pressure on, uh, you know, the the mayor of Paris, so that they finally cede um, and and allow PSG to essentially sort of acquire the club, or at least to a degree where they can do their own work to it. However, I would point this out, and this is something that's maybe underrated in sort of people's knowledge of, of French football clubs, and that's that very very few clubs own their stadiums some you know don't even own their sort of training facilities and youth facilities uh you know you only really have Lyon as one of the top french clubs who actually own their stadium and can do what they what they want with it and that took them years of financing and and strategizing to put that into place that's what psg hoped to do but obviously uh you know there is now this debate about the the club's identity you know do they remain PSG uh, if they move away from Parc des Princes? Uh, you know, does Stade de France potentially have a part to play in uh, in PSG's future? I, you know, I guess we will we'll get the answer sometime in the next sort of few weeks, months, maybe years. But uh, personally, from my point of view, I, I find it difficult to imagine PSG moving away uh, from Parc des Princes, certainly to Stade de France, which at the end of the day, is not a football-specific stadium. It doesn't feel like a, a proper football stadium. But then again, if PSG could acquire it, then I guess they could turn it into a, a, a proper footballing venue. Leon, Andy, that's your lot, isn't it? Check out the real estate. <laughs> yeah, they've not really made it work for them so far, I, I think it's fair to say. I guess that's the, the interesting thing about the Stade de France and a possible... PSG ownership issue there for me, JJ, is that um, if you look at how, say, Manchester City have made the City of Manchester Stadium um, that now Etihad work for them, it's about the area around it as well was really ripe for development. And you would have to say that's more the case at the Stade de France than it is at Parc de France. Parc de France. Middle so, class Parc I, de I mean, France. this is, yeah, I mean, this this is an ownership and development as much as a development issue, isn't it, really? So, obviously, that would, if, if PSG owned their own stadium, that would enable them to stand on their own two feet a little bit more. Now, Marseille have had their run ins with the Merry in terms of the, the ownership and the rent at the velodrome as well. If PSG can sidestep that how would that help them and if they had a sort of blank canvas where they could build around the stadium and develop around the stadium how might that be a step forward for them I mean, I think another thing to consider in all of this is that PSG have a state-of-the-art, uh, you know, footballing campus coming through in uh, in nearby Poissy uh, mm. that will be open, I think, even as early as uh, this summer for the senior players uh, should be finished sort of in the next couple of years uh, in terms of housing all of the, the youth teams and all of that as well, because there'll be a mini stadium in place. But sort of that aspect of sort of developing around a potential stadium. I mean, I think that ship has already sailed because of this project that's well under underway to, to being finished. 
it's why I still feel that at the end of the day, this is sort of a bit of, uh, you know, sort of political gamesmanship and, and trying to trying to work out the best possible leverage in order to, to, to make a, a sensible deal. Because for the, for the mayor of Paris as well, what suddenly happens if there's no team playing at Parc des Princes? You know, it's uh, it, it's it's ridiculous, I think, to, to sort of absolutely, you know, be standing by your guns that it still has to be owned by the by the city when they're not going to put in the, the kind of money that's needed to develop it into a venue that's sort of, you know, worthy of, uh, you know, housing a club with the aspirations that PSG have. Give us something to watch this weekend, fellas. A game of the week, if you will. Andy, will you go first? Uh, yeah, I'm going to start on Saturday early afternoon. Uh, we're going to go for Osasuna versus Betis. And there are some big games this weekend and that it, it was hard for me to turn my back on, particularly on Sunday. But we had the news this week that Joaquin is finally retiring after 23 years of professional football, 41 years old, very, very emotional goodbye speech. I really got the heartstrings, honestly. And this is the first game um, for Betis after that announcement. Wouldn't it be an amazing thing if in his final season, they get them to the Champions League. Sorry, Miguel, but it would be amazing. I know, I know it's got to start with Osasuna. The fact that Real Sociedad lost last weekend um, brings Betis a little bit closer as well. They're well in the mix for the top four and um, they're, they're terrific to watch um, at any time. So well, well, well worth recommending. And will he be singing, I did it my way? Uh, I'm, I'm sure he... In he, Spanish, he, he, will, he will be, but he'll be talking a lot as well because he, he, he likes to talk. So I think, I think there'll be a, 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 a spoken word section in the middle eight. Let's, let's put it that He's way. He's got my bug. Yeah, there, there we go. JJ? Uh, I'm going to follow on from what Andy was saying and I am going to stick with Sunday uh, staying with the theme as well of talking about stadiums in France I will be going to Lyon Sunday night to see uh, the Olympico which is Lyon against Marseille huge game uh, potentially with massive implications both in terms of the the Champions League uh, qualification spots and also Lyon's hopes of getting themselves back into European contention late on under Laurent Blanc so that for me uh, obviously the big game of the weekend in France but also the one that I will be keeping my eyes on the most. And it's also apparently the big uh, game of the weekend at the Brassel household apart from the Betis in Osasuna. What are you going to eat with that, by the way? You know what? I think as we're in the northeast of Spain, it's going to have to be a sort of black rice squid ink take on paella that, that you, you tend to get there. It's, it's, it's pretty good. But I, I don't know why you're asking me about the food. I mean, this man is going to the gastronomical capital well, of France slash Europe. As in Lyon? Yeah. It's the gastronomical heart rather than Paris. Yeah, only sure, only, only for the last four hundred years. Come on. What about Marseille? No, 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 no. <laughs> JJ, you're there. You tell me. Is are we going to the gastronomic heart of the of the La France or not? Oh, they definitely like to consider that it is. So I'll be uh, sinking my teeth into some Lyonnaise potatoes. Might even uh, pay a little visit to, to one of Paul Bocuse's uh, historic, oh, yes. uh, you know, uh, shrines to, to, to French culinary tradition. Uh, in fact, it's funny because uh, I think I saw a leaked design for one of Lyon's kits next season, which ties in with some sort of anniversary related to Paul Bocuse. And there's suggestions that the collar might even be a tip of the hat to uh, one of 
his uh, former aprons. So uh, I don't think there's any doubt that uh, Lyon is definitely considered the gastronomic capital of France. So we're going to go there and eat potatoes. Oh, the Lyonnais potatoes are, are, are famous from the from the region. Personally, I, I I'm not going to say they're overrated, but I haven't known too many people in France rave specifically about Lyonnais potatoes. I'm just going to leave it out there. Andy might beg to differ. <laughs> Football Ramble is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network.